All right, so um, just as we begin, something we've been seeing quite a bit, I think, are, are two things. There's two major lessons, and that is that apart from Jesus Christ and his blessing, the people of Israel stand no chance. Assyria is on the way. If you've been coming every single week, you know Assyria is on, it's on the way. Judgment is coming. And the temptation for the people of Israel is twofold. One temptation is that they are turning to political alliances with, with Egypt. They're, they're doing what Americans do, right? Thinking that we can, we can bring back the good old days, bring back the glory of uh, early America, bring back freedom and liberty and prosperity, if only we got the right guy in office, right? If only we made the right alliances, if only we wrote the right policies. But um, as we've learned time and time again, and it's like we never learned this lesson, the politicians always let us down, right? Um, I'm not too familiar with what exactly happened, but our new Christian uh, Speaker of the House, in my opinion, let us down real bad today. Yeah, um, pretty much just gave them everything they wanted. Um, no rollbacks, no cutbacks, no uh, trying to uh, balance the budget. Fortunately, some other people in Congress stopped him from what he was trying to do. But it looks like he is going to be uh, another one of those typical Christians that get in office and they're really good chaplains, chaplains of the status quo, um, but not fighters, not people that will stand up for God's law, not people that will really put their, their neck on the line. We'll see. Time will tell. But one thing I know is that you can't trust politicians to save you. You certainly can't trust other nations to save you or the army to save you. And does anyone know the nations that Israel kept turning to to try to save them from Assyria? Who was their deliverer? Egypt, yeah, it was Egypt, you know, sort of a, another regional superpower. <clears throat> and so uh, we need to understand this, that it doesn't matter if we get the right judges. How many years did Roe stay on the books, everyone wanting the right judges? Nearly 50 years, no one doing anything. <laughs> until we get the right judges. And then every time we get the right judges, turned out they were the wrong judges. And then we finally overturn Roe, and that seems like a good thing, but every single state uh, election and state referendum on abortion has gone the way of abortion. Every single one of them so far. We have lost every single abortion referendum so that now the states are legalizing abortion and putting it into their own state constitutions. Not to mention the fact that um, the Plan B pill and uh, over-the-counter pills kill more babies than abortion ever did. And so it's not, you know, there's just not going to be a political solution. There, we have to, um, in poverty of spirit, return to the Lord, mourn over our sins, and get up out of the pigsty and go back home. That's the only way that our nation is going to see any deliverance. There's no messianic politics does not save. I'm not saying don't play defense. I'm just saying it's not going to score any touchdowns. All right. And then the second thing I think we learn, this is a second temptation of the remnant, is to blur the antithesis. Uh, what's the, what is the antithesis? The dividing line between the church and the world. Yeah, the dividing line between the church and the world, between, or supposed to be the dividing line between the church and the world, between truth and falsehood, goodness and error. And, uh, and the church is tempted when they're under judgment, when numbers are shrinking, budgets are crumbling, the world is pressing down. The church is tempted to compromise with the truth in order to grow its popularity, to become more palatable to the masses, to get um, the, the big donors, right? 
And so we blur the antithesis. We round off the edges of the truth. You know, the common denominator compromises in order to pragmatically, in our minds, be able to win and be successful. The, ch- the church um, does that, though, and, and, and that never works either. Gideon shows us it doesn't matter how many people you have. It doesn't matter how big your budgets are. It doesn't matter your chariots or your horsemen. Gideon shows us that what's essential is to have a few good men who trust in the Lord and to not um, compromise and not boil things down to the lowest common denominator, even if you are hated by the world. So those are the two big compromises of, of Israel, and I think those are also the big compromises of the American church. Um, messianic politics and blurring the antithesis. Any thoughts on that? I think I'm close to the target there. I think so. I think those, that's the temptation, what, the, what to do when times are getting tough and, uh, and, and you're having pressure. And so um, these passages, though, remind us that unless you have a restored relationship with God, there's not going to be any safety for you as a church, as a nation. So let's get into verse 1. We'll start in, in uh, chapter 28. <clears throat> and we're going to see the city of Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom, a, a very regal, very glorious, you know, the Los Angeles of its day. And a very proud place and a very drunk place. Let's look at it. Verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was uh, the, one of the sons of Joseph, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the geographically, if I remember correctly, y'all remember? Ephraim, I believe, was the largest geographically of all the northern tribes. And so sometimes they would refer to all the northern tribes as Ephraim. Because there's just so many of them. They, were, they had a huge population. And so he calls the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And I believe he's referring specifically to the glorious city of Samaria. It's like their New York City. Their Los Angeles. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty. So you can see the great city of Samaria. It's fading and it's filled with drunkards which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. So a once glorious people, a once great people, right, who wore a crown and were a blossoming flower, what's happening to them? They're fading. That's right, they're fading. And why are they fading? Because they're drunkards, that's right. Drunkenness is causing their flower to, fl- to fade. And I think that's a sober reminder for all of us who drink, um, right? And most, most of us do drink. And, uh, and, and the Bible tells us to, to drink. Um, it's not absolutely commanded, but it's a gift from God. But this is a sober reminder um, that drunkenness can, if continued in, be like a hammer on an anvil. And, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but over a period of time, it just kind of eventually beats you down into nothing, Right. It, it fades the flower. And, uh, and and many great men have been taken out by drunkenness. And, um, you know, it's it's like any other sin. It, it never it's always a, a complete package. Drunkenness never comes by itself. It always comes with lust, um, sloth, gluttony, uh, pride, um, greed. You know, it comes with the complete package as it uh, slowly uh, fades you away, and, um, 
and, uh, and many a great man and many a, many a great uh, civil leader and church leader and many a great father and many a great mother have been taken down um, from drunkenness. So good sober reminder right there, right? Should I just skip over that verse? Right. No, no indeed. All right, so but now I want you to skip. I am going to skip some verses just for a second though. We'll come back to them. Go down to verse 7 <clears throat> because he picks up this this uh, concept again. These also reel with wine. So we have the glorious city of Samaria fading because they're living for the weekend. They, are, they don't care about dominion and, and serving their neighbor. They just work just enough to party, work just enough to pay the, the, uh, the bills um, that come due at the rave. I don't know. I don't, wait, what? <laughs> to pay the tab. Oh, that would have been perfect. All right. So these... Also real with wine. So that we have the Sumerian city, but also we have these also. Who do you think that these are? Yeah, yeah, partly. It says, look, let's, let's see if we can figure it out. No, we're not going to be able to figure it out from here. I figured it out from other verses. These also are referring to the remnant. Yeah, so you found it. Yeah, the verses we skipped. We're going to get back to that. The remnant, the church also reels with wine. Isn't that something? You know, it's very common in, a, in an apostate culture for the church to be corrupted, to kind of go down with the ship, right? And of course, we're going to see in a second that even though the church is corrupted and apostate and apparently drunk as well, that Jesus isn't going to give up on her, that he's going to save her. But um, it's certainly something we have to avoid as our culture diminishes and disintegrates and becomes increasingly vile. We can't give ourselves up to lust and, and gluttony and drunkenness and uh, living for nothing but self and pleasure, right? Right? So he says, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet, so even the pastors, and the preachers reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. So even the judges, when they are sitting on the, the bench rendering judgment, they're stumbling around like fools. And it's so bad that if you wanted to find somewhere to change a, change a baby diaper or make a clean dish, or have a seat, you wouldn't be able to, because look, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. There in verse 8. Do you all see where I'm at? So this, the whole, just, that just means everything's corrupt. Everything's polluted. Even the character of the church. And, uh, you know, I thought of a few reasons why we have to reject drunkenness beyond the obvious one. It'll destroy your life, and God says it's wrong, right? But, uh, but I found some other ones. Lafayette is voted, has been voted recently, the most drunk city in America. So I think we ought to be, yeah, I mean, I don't know if everyone thinks it's the most drunk city in America. It was one newspaper that I, that I saw, even, even more than New Orleans. I mean, we are a college town, Les Elebantins Roulet. Uh, we can probably give them a run for our money, you know, I, don't, I know, a run for their money. My point is not whether or not that's statistically true. 
my point is that we're in the running, okay? People think that about Lafayette. There's a reason why. And so, you know, we live in this culture. We're, most of us are Cajuns or Cajun adjacent. Um, and we, you just have to be careful. Cajuns are, you know, they're of the Dionysian spirit. What's that mean, kids? What does it mean to be of the Dionysian spirit? They like to party. That's right. They are, they are that, you know, that, the Bacchae. That's right. They are, they're the, uh, they are the, in, in Zoroastrianism, it's called the Mazda. In Greek religion, it's called the Dionysian spirit. It's the black side of the yin-yang. It's the, uh, it's the, uh, you know, the masks and the, and the feathers and the costumes and the Mardi Gras and the let the good times roll. It's a, it's a certain spirit. And, um, and that is Cajun, French, Lafayette culture. And so I think we have to be especially on guard for it, obviously. Um, another reason is that the enemies of the church would love to see this happen to us. They would love to see us um, fall to, you know, any of the seven deadly sins, right? So we don't want to give them a, a foothold to blaspheme God, right? That'd be, that'd be one of the worst things ever is falling into deep sin, is knowing that your enemies are dancing on your grave. It's like, oh, and you're still going to heaven, and they're still going to hell, but still, let's, you know, we don't want the bad guys to dance on our grave and be like, we knew you fraud, you suckers, right? We tried to tell you. Another reason is that um, the false teachers who teach the gospel of abstinence which, which is, as I've told y'all many times, a demonic false gospel. Not to abstain, that's not demonic. The gospel of abstinence is demonic. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 4, Romans chapter 14, don't touch, don't taste, don't, you know, don't handle. That's false teaching. Teaching that asceticism or withdrawal from the gifts of God is the, is the key to sanctification and the key to growth. That's a, a false gospel and there's no salvation in it. But um, the people, the false teachers who teach the false gospel of abstinence would also love to see you get uh, screwed up by alcohol, right? They would love to see that. And, um, and, uh, and also, I think, and this is obviously more of an important reason, the spirit would be grieved. If you keep doing it, the spirit gets grieved, and then your heart gets hardened, and then he stops speaking to you, and it, the sin multiplies and can get worse and worse. And then, of course, like sin, sin is like playing football. There's a whole team that comes along, right? So, but look at Psalm 104, verse 15. Just to show you, I'm not trying to ruin your party. Uh, verse 15, or my party, actually. Um, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. You see that? God causes the grass to grow for the livestock. I don't, I don't know if y'all looked it up, but you're listening at least. He causes wine to gladden the heart of man, to be merry, right? Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So bread and oil and wine. And I love, you know, I love carbohydrates and bread, I'm trying to cut off of it. But, you know, they would take the bread and the oil uh, with uh, what's the the pesto? Is that is that what you put in there? Basil. Oh, it's so good, so good. Those are all gifts from God. But too much bread, you know what happens, right? I don't know what happens to too much oil, but it's, pro it's probably something. And seed oils. Those are terrible, right? 
And, uh, but too much wine, you, gotta, you, you can't turn to it as an idol. You can't turn to it as an idol. So be merry, don't be drunk. Amen? All right, and it's important for your children to see this and learn how to, to do that from you. And um, it's also important not to cover your sin or excuse your sin. Uh, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. But if you don't mourn over your sin, if you don't confess it, go to Jesus Christ, or, you know, work on it, ask for help, um, well, then you won't be comforted. But you can be happy if you, if you uh, deal with your sin and confess your sin. You will not be happy if you cover your sin. What did David say when he was covering his sin? He said, I, I covered my sin and my bones wasted away, right? And, uh, and my flesh dried up. So it'll, it can affect you physically and make you miserable. So you want to be happy, not miserable. And also, I think another important thing to say, I just had a bunch of good things to say about this. Um, why is it called a bartender? Does anyone know? Yeah, what does that mean? He cleans up after everyone? What does it mean to tend bar? He just does what everyone says, wipes the bar. But historically, do y'all know why he's called a bartender? Because he cuts people off. He's tending the situation. He is a shepherd. He is the tender of the bar. And legally, historically, the bartender was an important position. Someone who had to have courage and someone who had to have wisdom. And <clears throat> bartenders would cut you off. Like, nope, you're, you're on coke the rest of the night. And I think it's important to be a bartender for yourself and to be a bartender for others, right? And to let others be a bartender for you, right? Let other people be a bartender for you. Um, and uh, if you can't be a bartender for yourself and, and you don't let anyone else be a bartender for you, then you're just going to have to have juicy juice <laughs> and, get, and get cut off. And we'll all just vote on it and just cut you off for a little while. Well, the church will be your bartender, right? I feel like that's fair. Right? I feel like that's fair. All right, well, let's move on. Verse 5. Well, we're not moving on. We're moving backwards. Verse 5. In that day... All right, this is good news right here. In that day... Remember, what does that mean, in that day? In the last days, that's the Messianic age. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord of Yahweh, of hosts. That means of angel armies. Will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, right? That's good news. I, I wanted to show you the bad news and then show you the good news. That's why I skipped the verses. But it, it is interesting that the remnant is corrupted by their culture to some degree, but one day the Lord is going to be their glory and their crown, not because they deserve it, obviously. In verse 6, He's going to send revival in that messianic age. Look what he's going to do. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. So God is going to come as a spirit of justice. Which person of the Trinity is that? That's the Holy Spirit. God's going to send his Holy Spirit to those who sit in judgment. And that is civil rulers in particular, elders, fathers, mothers, those who sit in judgment. And the Holy Spirit is going to come to them and help them. Uh, rule with justice, which means to rule according to God's law. So how do we know when there is revival breaking out in the Messianic age? Your rulers rule with justice. They render just judgments. And do we have that in our, in our land right now? No, of course not. We have children and fools 
ruling over us. And strength, and notice what else will happen in revival, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So power to beat their enemies. And their greatest enemy being Satan and sin, even the sin of drunkenness or any other sin. They will have the power from the Holy Spirit to beat that back and get it back, get it back on its territory, right? We, and we can all do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's move on to uh, verse 9. We come to a, a slightly different section here, 28 verse 9. And it's Israel mocking Isaiah's prophecies, right? It's essentially Israel's mocking God, you have to understand, I think y'all know this, Isaiah is not just a preacher. Isaiah is a, a prophet. He, he is literally speaking the, the word of God. He's not interpreting it and reviewing it like I do and explaining it. He's speaking it. He is, uh, it's different, okay? And so to mock Isaiah and to mock his teaching is to mock God. It's to mock the Bible. So when we think of them listening to Isaiah, it's the same as us reading Isaiah, reading the Bible. Okay, so look at it. To whom, this is a quote, you see it in quotes there? To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? The he is Isaiah. And the, and the message of the mockers is, who's he talking to? Right? Who's he trying to teach? He's trying to teach us knowledge? Who does he think he is? He's trying to explain stuff to us? Maybe he's trying to teach the babies. You see, those who are weaned from milk. Maybe he's trying to teach infants, those taken from the breast. Say, don't try to teach us. We already know. We already know what we know. We don't need to hear anything. We we're um, you know we got it all figured out. And that is a that is very uh, common for people who are who are proud. And then they go on in verse ten, talking about his teaching. It's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. That's what they're saying. Y'all have heard those phrases before? It's, it, it's, uh, it's actually funny. Most people quote those lines as like how you should preach. Line upon line. Expository. But those are actually the words of the mockers. That's <laughs> and there's a whole women's ministry called Precept Ministries. And it's fine. But it's just funny that they took their name from, from that line. Those are the bad guys saying that. So I don't... <laughs> That's what uh, the uh, women's temperance movement, which was like a feminist liberal movement in uh, the middle of the 20th century and uh, in the late 19th century. Their motto was don't uh, don't drink, don't touch, don't taste. And it comes straight out of the uh, the the uh, mouths of false teachers in the New Testament. And uh, and everyone just believed that like that was a good thing. That was false doctrine. So just be careful when you name your ministry that you don't name it. that You don't find the, uh, where the devil's talking and uh, choose that, right? <clears throat> the Bible's inspired, but not every single line is true in and of itself. There, you know, sometimes the devil's talking. And here the devil's talking, and he's mocking. It's kind of, I find it a little hard to understand what exactly they mean, but commentators say that they're saying, what he says is, is stupid, it's irrelevant, it's petty. He's just... Uh, shotgun blasting us with irritating annoying rules you know get all your dumb little rules out of our face i think that's kind of the the sense of course they're blinded though right they're blinded and so they don't they don't see anything anyway yes tori 
Well, this might have been the first time we get like a direct quote. But, I mean, they've been bucking Isaiah the whole time. No, this is the the book of Isaiah is an edited and compiled collection of prophecies all regarding the same time period, you know, Isaiah's life. And so it's not a it's not chronological like that. It's like it's like if I took all my sermons and to one group of people and put them all in a book. It's it's like that. But in in every one of my sermons was broadly about the gospel era that's coming and about judgment about how the Assyrians are about to kill every one of you. And we just compiled all of them together. Does that answer you, what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it might have been a particular thing that he was saying. It was just his message. You can. They say it in verse nine. They're talking about his teaching. Like, who's he trying to teach? His teaching is line upon line, precept upon precept. It's irritating. It's annoying. It's scattershot. It's not uh, you know intellectually sound, perhaps. And so. God curses them, right? I mean, what do you think God's going to do when you read his Bible and you say, this is all a bunch of stupid gibberish, just a bunch of rules, annoying, irritating rules, and you don't get the grandeur of it. You don't get the beauty of it. You don't get the good news of it. What do you think God's response is going to be? Right? Not good. Verse 11, so here you go. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. So he's going to speak to them in tongues. That's what he says. Oh, you think I'm talking gibberish? Wait till you hear the Assyrians' language. Right? Wait till you hear the language of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Medes and the Elamites and all the other uh, armies that are going to invade and the Romans and the Greeks. <clears throat> Let's look at a, a few verses. I think this will be interesting for you. And I need to ask some people, different people to look them up for us. So, Aaron, you want to get Deuteronomy 28, verse 49? Scott, you got your Bible right there? Oh, you want to get Jeremiah 5, 15? I'm trying to pick people on the front row. Y'all have your Bibles? Anybody? Miss Paula, you have yours ready to go? Can you do um, 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 22? And uh, Jude, you get Romans 9, 31 and 33. You have a Bible on your phone there? Isaiah 28, 16. Nicholas, you have a Bible right there? Yes. Matthew 21, verses 42 through 46. And let's see if we can figure this tongues thing out. Y'all ready? We can do it real quick. Right here, just like that. Y'all ready to do it? Or at least not all of it, but some of it. All right. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. You know, Isaiah 28, 11. You, you want to open up my Bible? And say that it's gibberish, and you don't get it. It's just a bunch of rules, blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, wait till you hear the Assyrians. <laughs> right? You think I'm not making sense to you. You think Isaiah's sermons don't make sense? Wait till you hear the Assyrians coming down your street. I think that's essentially what he's saying. But I want to show you that this is a, a, uh, something that goes way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. Um, who has that one? Aaron? Right. So, and by the way, uh, language is the word tongue. That's the word tongues means lingua, languages. Um, so, all the way back in Moses' day, 
It prophesied that if you don't um, keep the covenant and obey the commandments of the Lord, staying faithful to his covenant promises, that he would send foreign nations to Israel and speak to them in foreign tongues. What does that mean? Good news or bad news? It's a, it's a sign, it is a sign of judgment to the apostates, to the apostates, okay? That's not all that it is. That's one thing that it is. Jeremiah 5.15. Who has that one? Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Now, so not only in the time of Moses, prophesying it, but now coming to fulfillment in the time of Jeremiah with the Babylonian armies coming in, he says, I'm going to speak to you in the languages of foreign nations, and it will be a sign of judgment to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 22. Now, Paul brings this theme up in the book of 1 Corinthians when he starts to address what was going on in the church at Corinth. They were speaking in tongues in the church of Corinth, first century church of Corinth. What had not yet happened when Paul's writing Corinthians. The Romans had not yet come. Okay, so just so you understand that. Uh, starting in verse uh, 18 through 22. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, is a sign not for unbelievers, all right, so prophecy, preaching, preaching of the word of God, Isaiah, that's for the believers. What do the unbelievers get? Foreign languages. Okay, and it is a sign of judgment, of judgment. It is essentially, this is the principle. If we pull the principle out, what, does this happen today? Maybe, maybe so. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I lean towards, yes, possibly, that uh, there could be foreign languages spoken but I do believe it would be something similar, a sign. It would be a sign to believers in some sense and a sign to unbelievers in another sense. But um, I forgot where I was going with that, but mm, yeah, we'll come back to it. Well, it is a sign of judgment. Oh, the principle. The principle is that when the church is apostate and the nation has rejected the Bible and they all have Bibles, on their phones even. The judgment is that no one understands it. You know, that, that's the principle. The principle is that if you reject God's word, you get dumber. And you get dumber and dumber and dumber. Like if you don't want to pay attention in church, you don't want to learn, you don't want to listen, you don't think it's that relevant, you're, go you're not going to stay neutral. You're going to become spiritually blinder and blinder and blinder. And it is very true that the American church, especially the American population, with Bibles wide open, is clueless about what the Bible actually teaches. 
and, and name their Bible groups precepts. I don't want to be too hard on them. They're good people, but it is a little ironic. Um, so let's move on. Nine, or we're in the same topic, but next verse is Romans 9, 31 through 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. All right. Now look at Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. It's this is in our passage. It's um, a few verses later. You see, Paul is picking up on this Isaiah passage. Paul knows the Isaiah passage. Tongues, foreign languages, sign of judgment coming. Israel has rejected the cornerstone. They've been crushed by the cornerstone. How about what Jesus has to say, Matthew 21, 42 through 46? That's good. And parables, by the way, is another example of how God, if you want to reject his word, he starts speaking to you in gibberish like you don't you you don't get you don't get it. Um, so you can see that uh, Paul and Jesus apply this pat, this prophecy of Isaiah to the first century Jews with the Romans breathing down their neck. And you also see the prophecies of la- foreign languages coming and you see Paul interpreting it for that first century church in the in the first Corinthians, basically saying that tongues is a sign to the unbelievers, which is, I think, maybe why in church he was saying, hey, in church, you know, there's not any unbelievers in here. This really doesn't have like it's not as edifying for us. It, that's it's supposed to be a sign for the the apostate nation that judgment's coming. So around here, let's just do teaching and, and read in a language we all understand. Does that make sense? But he does go on. If you're going to speak in a, in a foreign language, at least have someone interpret it so the rest of us can understand what you're saying. Okay? Now, that means that in that time, and this is what I think is amazing about this and really good news, is that when on Pentecost they all came out filled with the Holy Spirit and were speaking in foreign languages, unknown tongues, and the and Bible actually, actually lists the languages that they were speaking in. One of them was Parthian, by the way, and Scythian, and Elamite, and those are the various tribes from their, from their country. But there was, they were speaking in foreign languages there, and it was so gibberish to the, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that they thought, these people are drunk. And w- what was actually happening was God was blinding them their ears were blind they couldn't understand the word of god and actually who did understand it who had the translation all the gentiles so tongues is a sign to unbelievers of judgment on israel but it's also a good news sign that the gospel is going to go to 
the Gentile nations, the people speaking all the unknown tongues. And uh, so I don't think that's everything there is to do about tongues, but I do think that's a large part of it. So pretty interesting. Um, <clears throat> so why judge them, though, with indiscernible speech? Why judge them with indiscernible speech? Uh, look at verse 12. To whom he has said, to, the, to Israel, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose, yet they would not hear. So he's basically saying, hey, rest in me, trust and obey me, follow me, but they won't listen. And that's the reason why they're being judged, right? That's the reason why with open Bibles, they, with Isaiah right in their midst, they don't listen. You know, uh, Paul says, one of the ways Paul says it is they can't endure sound doctrine. They're not interested in sound doctrine, can't endure it. It makes them angry and irritated. That's very common, very common. Um, moving down to, uh, I think it's verse 13. And the word of the Lord will be to them. See, here it is again. Oh, y'all, this is what y'all thought was funny? So the word of God is going to be to you. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. Right? You're going to find the teaching of God's word useless, irrelevant, irritating, annoying, and, and the reason for that is so that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken, enslaved, enslaved. He's saying, I'm going to make my words meaningless to you because I don't intend to forgive you and I'm going to send you off into slavery. That's serious right there, right? And I, I definitely think that we see the, the, some stage of that in the United States where the word of God is, is meaningless to most people. They cannot comprehend it. The church is pretty ignorant of the Bible, in fact. And uh, I, I sure hope that it's not for this purpose. Amen? All right, one last, one last uh, passage. Oh, no, no, verse 14. We're almost done. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. All right, so they're like, hey, we have a covenant with death. We have an, me and death, us and death, we've made an agreement. We have an arrangement. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. With the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge. So what is their, what is their refuge? What are they taking solace in? They're not worried about judgment. They're mocking Isaiah. God's judging them, and they're saying, no, we have a deal with death. We've worked out a, a little agreement. We can't die and go to hell. Does that sound like anything to you today? It sounds like a lot of doctrines that convince people that though they live in unrepentant sin, they're still going to go to heaven. They kind of have a deal with death. Like they're gonna be, there's going to be an exception for them. Yeah, I think there's the carnal Christian doctrine that teaches that as long as you made a decision at some point, you walked an aisle, so to speak, that you're a Christian, you're good. The fact that you live like a devil doesn't mean anything. You're good, you're fine. You prayed the prayer, we were there when you prayed the prayer, you got the fire insurance. Don't worry, God, we have fire insurance. We got a deal with the devil. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't, right? I think another one is the um, is, uh, easy believism, that you don't have to repent to be a Christian. You just have to believe certain doctrines. You just have to believe certain things. You don't have to repent of sin. I think that's another one. 
I think the idea that you're not, you know, I'm not going to reap what I sow. That's another one, right? God, God can be mocked. He's very nice and gracious. He would not be a God of wrath. That's another lie that people take refuge in and convince themselves they're fine. They're an exception. Do what? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a good person. God wouldn't send me to hell. Lies that they take refuge in. Makes them feel better. I think the deceitfulness of riches is another one. The Bible talks about riches as, as speaking lies. And one of the lies it tells you is that God loves you. You're good. You're powerful. You're worthy. You're a somebody. That's what money can do to you. You, you know what? You should sit on every board and make all the decisions. Right? You're, you're a big shot. You know, God notices you. Right? That's what, and you think, I'm good. I must be good. Look at me. I make more money than everybody else. You know, that's, an, that's another lie that people can rest in. Oh, I'm fine. I'm not going to hell. There's not going to be any judgment on me because of that. Um, verse 16, last verse. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion. Right? Now, this is salvation talk, one of the most important messianic prophecies. Who's doing the laying of the foundation? God. God's salvation is of the Lord and no one else. He lays the foundation. And where is the foundation? In Zion, which is the Old Testament imagery for the church. That's right, Israel, the church, the Israel of God. So there is a foundation he has laid in, in the church, in the people of God, in, in the, uh, the Israel of God. It is a stone. That means it is hard and fast and strong. It is a tested stone, which means that it uh, tests the hearts of men. It's a touchstone. It reveals um, your true character. You know, that's what Jesus is, right? He's the touchstone. And uh, either you uh, receive him and go to heaven or don't receive him and go to hell. He is the stone that God has laid, the touchstone, the tested stone that tries men's hearts. You see that in a lot of uh, movies. There'll be something that, like a scale, and a man is weighed in the balance, and the scale goes like this or like that. Um, Jesus is that scale. But it's also a precious cornerstone, which means it's very valuable and costly. That's Jesus. And a sure foundation. And uh, whoever believes will not be in haste, which means you won't be frantic, restless, scurrying around, terrified of all the judgment and all the bad things in this world you'll have tranquility and peace of mind whoever believes in that stone amen amen and that stone has been laid in zion jesus came out of the womb of the old testament church jesus is the head of the church you want to you want to be standing on that stone you better join the church that's why the westminster confession says ordinarily there is no salvation outside the church if you want to build the, your life on the rock join the church. Amen. All right. Y'all have a great evening.